that's what the Horizon Report is all about. It's our effort to answer this continual question of what's coming and what should I be doing now for our partners in a way that doesn't break the bank, but gives them first rate information. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome to Trends That Will Shape the Next Decade, a three-part series discussing the Horizon Report from the Center for Information and Communication Sciences at Ball State University. The Horizon Report identifies trends across three dimensions, technology, management and leadership, and business models. The report highlights the trends that are likely to have the most impact over the next decade. In this episode, we're going to dive into the technology trends. I am joined by the authors of the Horizon Report, Dr. Dennis Trinkle, the director of CICS, and grad students, Christopher Newhan, Cyrus Green, and Paul Feria. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for Thank having us. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Yes. Great to be here. Absolutely. I think this sets the record for the uh, largest number of guests on Status Go. Uh, might tie it, but I think it sets the record. So this is going to be fun. Dr. Trinkle, I'd love to start with you. Can you provide some additional context for the report uh, and, and maybe some of the impact that the pandemic had on your findings? Sure. Absolutely, Jeff. Happy to do so. Uh, like many great projects, the Horizon Report comes out of a problem. The center gets calls all of the time from industry partners, alumni, businesses, corporate partners working on projects who ask us to have a crystal ball, to be able to help them identify coming challenges, identify technology opportunities, understand what they ought to be investing in, all, a wide range of questions. And they ask us to recommend resources that they can turn to as they make critical business decisions. And some time ago, we realized that most of the answers to those questions involve heavy subscription or consulting fees. It's often a twenty dollars or $30,000 ticket to be able to get access to expert insights into what's coming in terms of a business trend or a technology trend or a leadership trend. And we said to ourselves, we have one of the top programs in the country that works at the intersection of technology, leadership, and business. And every year we have a remarkable cohort of graduate students who are incredibly accomplished when they come into the center and have a great deal of expertise, we could solve that problem directly for all of our partners if we undertook that research exercise and if we made that report freely available to all of our partners and more broadly, just as a service to the community to help all of the leaders out there struggling to know what's coming next, what it means for them, what they ought to be doing now, answering all of those kinds of questions. So that's what the Horizon Report is all about. It's our effort to answer this continual question of what's coming and what should I be doing now for our partners in a way that doesn't break the bank, but gives them first rate information. That's excellent. So it's not an annual report that you do. It's more as an as needed as you get the request. Or how does that part work? Yeah. So generally speaking, it is a biannual report biannual. because okay. 
compiling the work itself takes a full year of research, uh, interviews of experts, surveys across a broad variety of sectors, pulling all of that information together, analyzing the patterns that are there, lifting those up, and then being able to do deep dives into other information to flesh out the understandings that we want to pass along. So year two is usually about sharing information. Uh, Year one, collecting and analyzing the data, coming up with the insights. Year two, sharing that. And then year three, starting the whole process over again. I'd love to understand the impact that the pandemic had, not only on the the trends that you saw, but also on your process for obtaining those trends? Yeah, great question. The interesting thing is, I think that what we most commonly heard regarding the impact of the pandemic on the trends was a lot of exclamation marks. And I looked I looked to Chris and to Cyrus and to Paul to see if, if that resonates with what they picked up as a pattern as well. But in the conversations with experts that I had and looking at the data, I most often heard some version of this trend already existed, but it's really been accelerated or amplified by what's going on with COVID, right? So remote work, already happening, already a trend, greatly accelerated and greatly amplified by COVID. Um, And it wasn't just true for remote work. We saw that really in every domain that that wound up being the case. In terms of process, I would say that it, it made the... It made us put our money where our mouth is, right? So we're a, we're a technology program that does a lot of work by technology and web conferencing solutions. And that's obviously all that was possible, which cut both ways. On the one hand, I think because of the unique circumstances, we were able to access people who would not have generally been available. They would have been you know, commuting and traveling globally, high-level CEOs and major corporations who we might not have been able to easily access as we were this year because they're working remotely and they've got their own Zoom cadence or web conferencing cadence that we could work into. So we had fantastic global access to leaders in a way that I think was probably unique to this period. Um, it was challenging on the flip side, right? Because we're human beings, we're social creatures. We pick up a lot by being in the room Um, that while it may not be explicitly stated, it's certainly valuable information to pick up those nonverbal cues and those tengings, those hedgings around the information that's being conveyed. So we lost a lot of that, but we made up for it in access. It's kind of a microcosm of what many of our listeners probably experienced as well over the, the last 15 to 18 months of having to do video reductions in travel. So it's interesting that it impacted this program as well. I should mention to our listeners, we're going to attach a link in the show notes, provide a link in the show notes to the report. So you'll be able to read the full report after the program airs. I do want to point out the 10 trends that are a part of the technology segment of this report. There's AI and machine learning, internet connectivity and 5G, big data analytics and visualization, augmented and virtual reality, cybersecurity threats, biotechnology and digital medicine, IoT and next-gen networks, cloud, automation and robotics, blockchain encryption and digital currencies, and massive computational power. We don't have time to dig into all 10 of those today, But I would like to ask each one of you to highlight one that stood out to you. Chris, I'd love to start with you on this. 
Sure, absolutely. I, the the trend that I think is important to highlight, and again, all of these are, are incredibly important, interconnected, and weave weave into each other. Um, but artificial intelligence and machine learning, AI and, and ML, if you will, uh, is one that I think is important to highlight for a couple of reasons. One, specifically, the the concept that it intertwines with every industry, everything from higher education to the automotive industry, for example. We can see how artificial intelligence and machine learning applications and technologies can be applied across the board at various different levels to really improve the bottom line of companies, but also make it, you know the role of employees, the, the lifeline of, of many companies a little bit easier as they navigate the, the systems of the future. Um, and there's a couple of different spaces that, that you know, AI and, and machine learning really touch on. But the reality is um, we create a lot of data as a, uh, as, you know, a human race in, in a lot of capacities, so much so that we are outpacing our ability to properly analyze, collect, and really interpret that data into meaningful insights. And, and, and that creates a lot of uh, you know, gray area for many companies, industries, uh, types of employment. With machine learning and artificial intelligence and the, and the advances that come with it uh, over the next decade, we're going to have the opportunity uh, for the first time to tap into this incredible amount of data uh, and, and more so draw realistic, meaningful insights from it that can uh, obviously have a pretty large impact on, across industry. So as you were doing this, uh, when I read the report, you point out that there's three different types of AI. And honestly, I knew of two. Uh, so the third one was was a new one to me. Do you just mind sharing what those three types are? Absolutely. The The first one is what we, we identified as artificial narrow intelligence or ANI. Um, this is something you can categorize as um, a machine or a device specializing in one specific area. Now, we have access to this uh, Alexa, for example, uh, Google Home products, a variety of, of simple AI, if you will, that are leveraging really one service. They are, are voice-driven interfaces, asking a simple question and, and receiving a, a simple calculated response that, that's based on data um, and really finding that solution. The second piece in the second type is what we identified as artificial general intelligence or AGI. This is something that would be classified as as smart or smarter than a human oper operator. Uh, this type of technology, AGI, is, is not currently on the market for uh, you know front-facing consumer ability. This is something that uh, is likely years or or decades away, uh, but it is something that will really become the the front-facing cusp of actively leveraging the amount of data I referenced earlier. Uh, and the third piece is what's called artificial superintelligence, or ASI. Uh, and this type of intelligence is something that is um, much smarter and, than the most intelligent human brain in every single capacity, at every single pivot point, in every field. Again, the only one that currently exists and that currently is being used in a consumer or, or uh, business capacity is that first one, the narrow intelligence. And as you can imagine, the, the possibilities really become... Uh, quantifiable as you move up in these different layers. As you were conducting your research, what surprised you most? What did you learn that surprised you the most? I think the, the thing that surprised me most specifically with, with AI and machine learning, uh, again, goes to the, the ability for this type of technology. Uh, and, and I also, it's a point to reach is, is AI and machine learning is not one in technology, right? This is a field and an umbrella term that really encompasses a plethora of different types of, of technologies and, and, and forms of mechanics that enable this type of this this type of uh, trend to really be, become. 
but the thing that I think is most interesting is the the level of involvement and uh, penetration across industries. You know, we can see with with the pandemic, for example, the way teachers leveraged AI for their classrooms that were handled remotely in a capacity. We can see in the automotive industry how AI can be leveraged to reduce work hours uh, and have a, a machine operating 24-7 versus your traditional uh, ability to have an employee work eight hours a day. So it, it's in, very interesting for, for our research and I think for, for us as a team as we were diving into this. Uh, it really penetrates um, every corner of, of our society and how we operate, not only for business, uh, but also on the consumer end of things. There's applications that are far and wide, and it's one of those really far-reaching uh, technology pools that's going to impact all of us over the next decade. That's excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Chris. Cyrus, I want to jump to you. I know you and I've had a previous conversation or two over the last several months. So I saw a couple of these uh, 10 items that probably grabbed your attention, but which one fascinated you the most as you were doing the research? Yeah, absolutely. So Jeff, as you know, as we've discussed before, security is certainly uh, front of mind for me. And it was fascinating to hear uh, really across the board, uh, uniform attention given to uh, from our thought leaders and interviewees towards cybersecurity threats. So that's certainly the area of disruption I'd love to speak on. Just to add on as well to the piece that you and Dr. Trinkle were discussing earlier about the interplay between uh, COVID-19 accelerating and in some cases accentuating trends that we've you know, been seeing and observing before, uh, that's very much been the case with cybersecurity threats as well. Uh, many of these trends and, and dangers have existed for for a significant period of time, uh, but COVID and, and some of the, the after effects of the pandemic have absolutely elevated the risk and threat surface posed by those threats. Most specifically, we're looking at the, the remote work trend that we've outlined in the report that has absolutely had a significant effect on the cybersecurity uh, threat landscape. I was going to ask you about that, that whole remote work, work from home, and what areas rose to the top specifically in cybersecurity related to that sudden rush to do a work from home environment? So I think the biggest risk when you look at uh, remote work and, and what that invites as far as as far as a threat is uh, remote desktop protocol or really just broadly remote access. Uh, it's certainly beneficial and convenient to have offsite workers uh, with access and management uh, capabilities for uh, on-premise servers and machines. Certainly in an era of remote work and distributed teams, this is in many cases required for businesses. At the same time, it certainly does invite risk. And especially when you talk about ransomware, which has certainly come to the forefront as far as high profile attacks in the past few months. This is absolutely an area where remote desktop protocol is being exploited by ransomware actors as well as others. So that's, I think, what I would outline is the biggest risk when you look at remote work. So I, I would imagine that the other thing that might we might have seen a spike in with this is phishing attacks because now you're working from home and maybe you're not as vigilant as you are in the office. Did that come up in the research as well? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the cybersecurity threats portion of the Horizon report, we identified the top five trends uh, that emerged from our expert interviews. Phishing absolutely was one of those five trends. Uh, and when you look at the interplay between, as I mentioned earlier, just as all of our disruption areas of disruption are, are linked, so too are cybersecurity threats. Uh, so when you talk about ransomware attacks, phishing is certainly one of the enablers and vectors by which ransomware attacks are executed. And it certainly is, you know, been a problem in the past, 
and remains so today. And as you mentioned, Jeff, it is uh, only exacerbated by an increasingly distributed workforce, uh, which makes it much harder to implement standard security policies and ensure adherence to those policies when you have workers really all over scattered across uh, across geographic areas. Yeah, I imagine when you think about uh, the extension of the business network into the home, I, I talked to a friend of mine that's a CIO several months ago, and he said, yeah, before the pandemic, I had 400 locations worldwide. After the pandemic hit, I had 18,000 locations. And just that alone, the sheer volume has to be crushing. But you also don't know what else is riding on that home network that may be of danger, right? They could be coming in through your kids' video games that they're playing online because you're riding on that same network, right? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think those numbers uh, just highlight the complexity and the, the new environment that security professionals and employees alike are, are forced to navigate. Uh, we t- certainly speak to the benefits and the flexibility afforded by remote work, but uh, that kind of distribution really does introduce a tremendous amount of risk and complexity when you think about managing uh, and securing systems, endpoints, and machines. One of the things that, that I hear from CIOs all the time is the, the fact that CIOs and CISOs, I should say, is that they kind of feel alone in this battle, uh, right? That it ends up being on their shoulders. As you talked to the experts in these fields, how did they talk about uh, educating the masses? In other words, uh, making sure that everybody takes cybersecurity as their job. Yeah. So Jeff, I'll, I'll hop in on this one because during our research, I was speaking to the CTO of the St. Louis Treasury Department at the time. Um, and we touched on cybersecurity and especially with the challenges that come with it in working from home. So everybody knows the standard protocol of, hey, you, you're getting onboarded as a new employee and I'm going to sit down in this room or at my desk in front of this laptop and I'm going to get educated on phishing and different cyber attacks and then nothing ever again, maybe once a year, you know. So what he was talking about was hands-on training uh, determined by the tier in which you fall within the organization. So depending on your leadership status, your access is going to depend on how frequently you need to get refreshed on this training and what type of training you have access to. So it isn't just a one and done type thing. They've What they really did was change their relationship to cybersecurity to be able to say, hey, this is something that we need to integrate into our culture. So yeah, maybe once a quarter, we're going to have our entry-level employees, as an example, do cybersecurity training on phishing and properly forwarding emails and making sure they're not engaging with any anything that could create malware. That's once a quarter. That's not once in 10 years if they stay around that long. That's once a yeah. quarter. And then maybe once or every half a year and then every year after that. So it really just depends on where they fall, but it's always integrating. It's always front of mind for their organization. That's excellent. I think that's a real challenge. Did I step on somebody that wanted to add to that? So I, I was going to jump in and mention, Jeff, that your question reminded me of a conversation that I had with one of our top execs who works in cybersecurity and other areas, Jordan Hetland, who said that businesses only barely understand that they're going to have to start thinking about cybersecurity as a cultural issue. 
Mm-hmm. Because as our research showed, the overwhelming, and most of your listeners will know, the overwhelming majority of attacks start out as social attacks, individual yeah. level attacks, manipulating relationships before they become technical exploits. And the trends that we're talking about are going to make it so possible to create deep fakes and mm-hmm. realistic messages that seek information that will allow access, passwords, usernames, access into those protected systems, that it's going to take a real cultural shift in mindset change to be able to address what's going to be coming and and really quickly, like over the next five to six years, in terms of change, we're going to have to go from a thinking that the attack messages will be kind of obvious to realizing that they're happening all of the time, they're pervasive and they're not obvious. So we're really going to need a cultural shift, a mindset shift, and a broad educational effort if enterprises are going to be able to keep their systems safe and our individual systems at home. Thanks for adding that in. I could not agree more. When I talk to CIOs, this is exactly what keeps them up. It's You can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on your security systems and you're one mouse click away from someone clicking on the wrong hyperlink and uh, uh, and all of a sudden people are in there and then the the trend that you also point out in the report the the hackers are now targeting your third party software vendors uh, and so you're you're bringing them in your front door because you trust that software vendor and all of a sudden uh, they're in there. So uh, I think this is a topic that we could dig into for, gosh, for hours. But I would love to move on. And Paul, uh, again, I think I could probably guess a couple of areas that really jumped out at you as you were doing this research. But pick an area and tell us what you learned. Yeah, I, uh, and that's so true, Jeff, and, and I appreciate that. So what really stood out to me across conversations and research was big data, visualization, and analytics. And that is something that is so, it's a buzzword, big data. It's such a buzzword that's thrown around all the time now. But in the context of the conversations that we were having on the research for this book, it really started to blow my mind as to how big it really is and to how pervasive it'll be. One of the things that I came across was the World Economic Forum reported that we've got roughly 40 times the amount of bytes of data on our planet as there are stars in the observable universe. Wow. Yeah, that's wild, right? That is wild. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, Facebook, for example, is a huge company, you know, and Jennifer Merrill at TechPoint succinctly and did a great job of, of, of stating this, but she said, Facebook's never going to have a problem with hiring a data scientist and building an algorithm and allowing that to inform how the company should move forward with different initiatives. What I found fascinating though, is if I'm a small to medium sized company, or if I'm a company that isn't currently integrating data into the daily life, am I going to get left behind? Am I going to get left out? What are the ramifications of my ability to use this data on my longevity? And I think this goes back to the crystal ball that Dr. Trinkle was talking to about before, where people are looking for that certainty in the future. And I think I was really surprised to find that, you know, obviously not the entire crystal ball, but a lot of it lives in that data 
and what you do with it, the questions you ask of it and how mm-hmm. you are able to leverage it to move forward. So that, that was my biggest takeaway in a nutshell. Well, one of the things that the report touches on related to big data analytics and visualization is privacy and security. Yeah. Uh, and we were just talking about cybersecurity. How does that play in the big data space at the personal level, the individual level? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think the most immediate response to that is as a consumer, my data and my information is being collected, uh, not just with the companies that I pull out my credit card for and do business with, but it's almost coming from collecting my IP address every time I run a Google search and where's this search coming from. So to kind of narrow the scope of that question, if I do business with a company, then my data can basically be condensed into, let's say, just for sake of argument, an Excel spreadsheet. And Mm -hmm. let's say that it's standard query language or SQL. So now this company has a database, an SQL database that that they are housing, that they're going to start running analytics on. Well, if they don't have the proper security measures put in place, like Cyrus was talking about earlier in the ripple effects here, next thing you know, a hacker or a spammer or a bot anywhere on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, anywhere on the internet can give that algorithm or give that database information in the form of malware or ransomware that's disguised as SQL. So now that's in the same database as my credit card information, mm-hmm. as my personal information. And now when they go to run that query, that malware gets triggered. And we're talking about ramifications from exposing my information on the internet all the way to the hacker taking control of the database and influencing operations. So as an individual, I have to be really cognizant of the ripple effect of what I'm doing online. Well, I think, again, this can go uh, into lots of different areas. I, I heard a guy speak, this has now been several years ago, about the concept as data as currency, that we own our personal data uh, and we should be trading that for something of value uh, that these companies, uh, the companies that are gathering the data. Did any of that come up in the in the interviews and the conversations? Yes, I'm really happy you brought that up, actually. Um, it did come up in the context of the Internet of Things. So uh, we're, we're getting into a situation now where data is informing everything from when my house triggers the air conditioning to the heating, to, you know, how, how much stuff I have in the refrigerator. And within the context of this conversation, um, this person was speaking about, well, let's say company A. Mm-hmm. Company A has this Internet of Things device. Let's say it's uh, a refrigerator. And they know, or better yet, a security camera. So they know when I come home. They know when I leave to pick up my kids from school. They know when I leave to go to work. So they can customize my garage door opening for example. Mm -hmm. Well, now all of a sudden the company has that data and the conversation is shifting to, wait a second, that's my life. That's my data. You can't use my data without my consent, my permission, better enhance your security systems. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So the conversation is definitely starting to go that way. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, I'll, I'll jump in and share an interesting point that, that came out of the comments as well. So I, I think listening to folks ruminate on this particular topic related to the to 
all of the technologies, AI, big data, cybersecurity, are experts divided into two camps. One camp sort of stressed the thread that we're anchoring in on right now around trying to find policy solutions and procedure solutions that would protect individual information. But there's another camp that simply believes that's technically impossible and that it's ultimately an ineffective solution that's never going to work. And that this other group stressed instead that what's going to be necessary is that everybody be equally transparent. And one, one of our um, wow. interviewees referenced a book that David Bren wrote back, I think, in the late 90s called The Transparent Society. And Bren was the editor of Wired Magazine, and he argued that with the technology that was available 20 years ago, it was already clear that the era of privacy was over and that we all needed to get used to constantly living in the spotlight and that there was no way to get away from that, that the drift of the technology was to miniaturize devices, AI algorithms and so forth. And that if we were going to protect our freedom and our society, what we were going to need to do is make sure that large enterprises and the powerful were equally naked and that they were not able to use their resources to hide in darkness while everybody was else was widely publicly available. I don't think we're gonna suggest in the Horizon Report which of those camps is right, but I think that these two schools of thought pose some really interesting questions about what the problem is that we ought to be attacking and how to best attack it. Uh, that's exactly right, and I love that you brought that up, and uh, amazing that that he was thinking about that uh, so long ago, and now, we're, we're kind of living that. The other aspect about big data that I think is fascinating that uh, maybe we'll get into on a future conversation is the whole concept of dirty data. How do you know the data is right when it's in there, right? You're doing, you're doing analytics and you may even be doing visualizations on data that for whatever reason, accidental or nefarious, the data may be wrong. I teach a class on big data as kind of an overview for non-technologists. And one of the demonstrations that I give them is my cell phone and its GPS as it's tracking me, right? As I'm driving in my car. And the fact that on this given day, uh, my cell phone showed me on a street that I hadn't been on in 10 years, but on, it showed me on that street and I was never there that day for whatever reason the algorithms and the satellites were, you know, the clouds were misaligned, so to speak. So anyway, we'll dig, we'll dig into that on a future conversation. But uh, Dr. Trinkle, before you share an area, I'm going to toss you a bit of a curveball here. Uh-oh. Uh, what area was number 11? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. That's a great question. You know, I so I think we probably did have a number 11 that we talked about a number of times, whether we ought to add and, and make it an 11 or make it a 10. I'll probably cheat and give you two. Um, <laughs> but the one that we actually debated, whether it, it ought to be one of the 10 or an 11, and it didn't make the cut was, was the whole notion of synergy. So many of our experts pointed out that each of these trends that we're talking about are individually meaningful. AI, machine learning, a big trend, internet of things, a big trend, data analytics, cybersecurity. But when you put them together, the changes that are coming, the, the trend lines that are coming that are going to reshape business practices, open up new possibilities, enable new technologies, it is really remarkable. 
Um, and we thought we really ought to include that and give some specific examples of the interplay of those technologies, right? Take an example um, from the thread we were just drilling in on. Once you apply big data and improvements in, in computational power and artificial intelligence, and you put it in the hands of cyber attackers and what they will be capable of doing in real time and at scale becomes mind-blowing, right? To borrow one of Paul's favorite expressions, it, it literally is mind-blowing. Our enterprise colleagues who are listening to your podcast, right, know we're already struggling to keep up and figure out what the implications yeah. are for our business of these trends in isolation. Every one of them is projected by MIT to reshape business models over the coming decade and to lead to 20 to 1,000 new businesses being created in each of these areas. So AI, machine learning, 10 to 20,000 new businesses created per year, each year for the next 10 as, as businesses figure these out. Same for data analytics and so forth. But put these technologies together and get their exponential and logarithmic power. And then you, we really have a glimpse of what we need to be preparing for and how we need to be thinking over the coming decade. Yep. Yeah, that, that convergence, uh, I was thinking that as we were having these conversations, so much of these trends are intertwined uh, and impact on each other. We we're just talking about security and privacy related to big data. Uh, so thanks for indulging me on that curveball, Dr. Trinkle. What area would you like to highlight from the report? Sure. Yeah. So I will get to that. Before that, I will, I will steal one more, which could have been our 10th but wasn't really a trend as much of a projection or an anticipation. And I'll mention it because once you start to think about what the exponential implications of these technologies are going to be, it can start to become overwhelming. And this 12th factor, I think, gives us cause for hope that it will be manageable. And that is um, some of our commentators pointed out that as we develop these technologies, we always come up with software and systems that allow us to develop without having to do it at the base level. I remember one conversation, somebody gave the example of when we were, when many of us were first programming, we did it at the binary level, right? Yeah, and it, it yeah. took hours and it was ponderous and it made programming a very exclusive thing. And, you know, 20 years later, we had advanced development tools and libraries that made coding accessible to nearly everybody and made it a quick and facile process. So the same thing is going to happen, right? Software and systems that enable the general creation of artificially intelligent systems, automation, data analytic applications, those things are being developed now and are coming, and they're going to be significantly more sophisticated in a decade. So at the same time, we can think it might be overwhelming. There are also going to be tools coming from the other direction that make it manageable. Um, so I would say those things yeah. up front. And then for my trend, I would mention massive computational power, which also intersects all of the trends that have been mentioned so far. Mm -hmm. Very important at the intersection of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity and data analytics is going to be the steps that we're taking with the increase in computational power. And I'll, I'll share a parallel that one of our interviewers gave that really struck me. Um, they compared where we are today with the Mercury space program and noted that to be able to put a person in orbit, we had to develop a wide variety of new technologies, right? So from 1958 to 1963, 
technologists, many of the brightest minds in the United States were working on the problem of being able to build a rocket that could safely put a person into orbit. That wasn't the long-term goal. The long-term goal was to get to the moon, but they had to start with the Mercury program. And many said that where we are right now with quantum computing and some leaps in processing power that are going to be uh, beyond exponential, exponential by a factor of three, five, 10, that we're at that Mercury stage. But like Mercury, just a decade later, man was walking on the moon, right? By 1969, we had man walking on the moon. So not even a decade from 63 to 69. And if you think about that as a metaphor for where we are with quantum computing and computational power, recently computers in both the United States and in China have achieved quantum supremacy, whereby they were able to execute with the quantum computer an exercise that would take 10,000 years on a standard computer that exists today, right? So it's a proof of concept. It's that Mercury program moment for quantum computing, showing it's possible. We can get the man in orbit. We can do quantum computing. In six to 10 years, we're going to see commercially viable quantum computers with that kind of processing capability. And then that, just think of all of the possibilities that opens up, right? Um, Analyzing complicated weather patterns, traffic patterns, metric analysis to understand stark stock market fluctuations. On the dark side, uh, cyber hackers using those technologies to find vulnerabilities in real time that no human brain could possibly ever isolate. All, all of that will be coming at the intersection of these other technologies and absolutely important for us to be thinking about as we start to develop our short-term, mid-term, and long-term plans for our organizations or for the entrepreneurs who listen to the podcast, a wealth of opportunities for new business creation. One of the things that I found interesting in reading that section of the report was the political discussion. Uh, It felt like reading it, it was almost like the new arms race. Was that pervasive throughout your interviews in that topic area? Absolutely. You know what? And I may be a topic for another conversation, but I would say that many of our interviewees are concerned about the geopolitical dimension of all of these technologies and feel like the United States is intentionally to some, unintentionally to others, putting itself as a disadvantage in the global technology arms race, right? I think there is a widely held, though maybe not majority, but a widely held perception that both China and Russia are able to control investments and focus the state and support corporate actors in developing new technologies to give them competitive advantage. And Mm -hmm. they don't see the same focus and investment, a, a space race, if you will, a space race kind of investment on the part of the private and public sector in the U.S. to make sure that we don't fall behind. And they also pointed out that um, once you fall behind on an exponential technology, you may never catch up, right? Because it's not a linear progression. It's a logarithmic progression. And once, say, China or Russia gets dominance and pick a technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, you might never be able to close the gap because they can employ that technology for durable, sustainable, competitive advantage. Yep, so really a lot to think about there. I, again, I encourage all of our listeners to to pick up a copy of this report. We're going to link to it in the show notes because it's just chock full of information. We could talk for a couple of hours 
on these and probably not even exhaust the threads to pull on at that point. But as you all know from our conversations, and I know several of you have listened to Status Go in the past, we're all about action. It's kind of in our name, Status Go, right? So aside from reading the report, which I'm guessing each one of you would recommend, what should our listeners do tomorrow because they listen to us today? Paul, I'm going to start with you. What's one thing our listeners should do tomorrow? One thing your listeners should do tomorrow is ask themselves a few questions. So when we get into things like big data, it's very tempting to say, you know, I want to start using the cloud and run some data analytics on all this customer information that I have for the past 10 years. Forget about that for a second, right? You got to think about asking yourself and your organization, how are we currently positioned to take in new information that will allow us to adapt into the future? How are we currently set up to understand our customers? How well do we know our customers? How well do we know our teams? How well do we know our marketplace? And really just ask those questions because I think a lot of times, especially with big data, it can reveal a lot of insights that you may not have access to at the moment or can amplify your current insights. And unless you're willing to question how well you know or don't know your current situation, you can't really leave room for those insights to come through. So I would say ask those questions for sure. I love that as an action because so many times we get caught up in the day to day and we don't take the time to reflect and to ask those kinds of questions. So thanks for that, Paul. Cyrus, what's one thing our listeners should do tomorrow because they've listened to us today? So when I was discussing the challenges posed by uh, remote work um, for, for cybersecurity, uh, I certainly outlined remote desktop uh, protocol or really remote access. And mm-hmm. I think my action item will be tailored around that specific threat. It's something that really can be addressed and, and um, hardened fairly quickly. Uh, the first question I think organizations, leaders need to ask themselves is, is this something we need? Obviously, yeah. as, I, as we know, it comes with risk. There are benefits to be had from that kind of remote access. If your organization does not need remote offsite workers to have remote access, uh, don't do it. it. It's simply not worth the risk it invites. Uh, if the answer is yes, it is necessary for our organization to enable this sort of remote access, then uh, a quick step to be taken is an awareness of what is internet facing. If those RDP servers are exposed to the internet, change that wherever possible, put them behind the firewall, and again, eliminate that exposure to the internet. Uh, we know that around four and a half million RDP servers are currently exposed to the internet, and in many cases, organizations aren't even aware that, that there is exposure to the internet. And I think just changing the visibility there, uh, becoming aware of what is and is not exposed and addressing it wherever possible is certainly a, a fast, actionable step to improve resilience. And, and the last piece I'd add uh, and, the, and the topic of, of strengthening uh, the safety of RDP is ensuring and implementing multi-factor authentication. This is mm-hmm. just goes one step further to ensure that only authenticated, validated users are accessing and engaging those RDP resources and uh, will simply make it harder and more resilient to the kinds of uh, RDP exploitations we're talking about when we think about ransomware and other attacks. And I know, Jeff, that you asked for one action item. That was sort of a three-pronged solution, but it really does go a long way towards uh, improving the resilience and safety of uh, remote access for remote teams. Yeah. 
It's all it's all related. It's one 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 thing. So I'll, I'll let you get by with that, Cyrus. They're all great recommendations, and and I appreciate that. So, Chris, what's your one thing? I, I think I'll take a broader approach to this to this question rather than specifically identifying a, a, an action item for one of the the trends that we outlined. I think at a broad level, building off of Paul's point is. For the you know the listeners, whether you're a, a CIO or simply an entry level, uh, you know, starting your career in this space, take the time to reflect at a at a high level. Where is your business today? And recognize the ten trends that are outlined in this report and identify: Is our business? Am I as a as a professional in this space properly positioned to best leverage these trends uh, tomorrow, but also for the next decade? We know these trends are here, as you mentioned in the introduction, they're happening and COVID exacerbated many of them, uh, but that level of exacerbation is going to continue. And how can you position yourself the best as, a, as an employee, as a professional to leverage these trends to better your, your career? But more importantly, how can businesses identify where do we need to be tomorrow or a year from now or five years down the road to make sure that 10 years down the road, we're not left behind because we ignored the trends that are outlined here and that are broadly available. Uh, so yeah. I think at a large level is spending the time and the adequate resources uh, as an industry and as a, as a business and even as, a, as an individual to reflect, these are things that are coming, how can I best get in front of them and leverage them yeah. best uh, for my, you know, my professional development or my business's development in the future? That's great advice, Chris. As you think about your business, how are these trends impacting you today and how will they impact you tomorrow? I think that's great advice. So Dr. Trinkle, what's one thing for our listeners to do tomorrow because they listen to us today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm gonna key off of what Chris said and say, take that mindset of identifying what these technologies mean for your organization, for you and individually, and take it down to the tactical level, right? So resources are scarce. Time is our most precious resource, but we never have enough funds for all of the initiatives. So I would say identify, think through all of the trends and look at your sector and your organization or your career and think about which ones seem most meaningful, most impactful, and come up with some small scale pilots or exploratory exercises that you can engage in because a lot of these trends are not immediate, but they're going to be quick in their progression over the coming decade. You can't afford to invest all in right now, but you can't afford to fall behind either. So the best thing to do is to start doing exercises that will help you to see opportunities to become more familiar with the technology implication, to identify both capacity that you have and capacity that you need. So get started. Try to make those 1% to 2% investments now that will poise you so that when the pivot starts to come, when it becomes timely, you're ready, that you're not starting from zero. I love that. I love the kind of the dipping the toe in the water and uh, some experimentation with some of these uh, in your business and in your industry is great advice. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for carving out the time to talk with us today. I know our listeners are going to gain valuable insights from our discussion and from reading the report. So thank you all very, very much. Great to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us on, Jeff. I'm looking forward to the next conversation already when we dig into the part two of the report. 
To our listeners out there, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links to the report and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Dr. Dennis Trinkle, Chris Newhan, Cyrus Green, and Paul Feria. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.